0: Good morning, church. So today we're gonna have a sermon that's slightly different than normal. Uh, Today we're literally just gonna go straight through the passage, break it down bit by bit as we go and talk about what each section of today's passage means for our lives, and that's gonna be the entire sermon. So today we're looking at Mark chapter five, verses 21 to 43. Uh, As a reminder, we're going through our church Bible reading plan this year. And during the season of Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter, we've, for our church Bible reading plan, we've joined with the other churches of Hong Kong to read through the books of Mark and Romans as we prepare for celebrating Easter together. And so this passage in Mark is part of this week's Bible reading on the schedule. And we're going to be looking at this passage today, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And as we look at the passage today, We're going to see that Jesus, the Son of God, has power over life and death. Jesus, the Son of God, has power over life and death. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, that he is the Son of God and that he came to earth to be with us and that he has power. And I pray that you would show us that power today and help us to trust in him and trust in him to use that power for our good in our lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I think if you've been around church for any amount of time, it's probably pretty typical for many of us to think of the Bible and think of it as as just being God's word, which is true. It is God's word. It's good that we think of the Bible as God's word. But when we think of the Bible only as God's word, it can be easy to forget that God chose for his word to be written through real life, human beings. These, these people who wrote the individual books of the Bible, they lived in specific times and places in history. They were real life people. Each of them had specific reasons for writing the books that they wrote. And Mark is no different. We don't know exactly what inspired Mark to sit down and write the Gospel of Mark, but he makes it very clear in his writing that one of his goals in writing this book is to show us that Jesus is the Son of God, and to show us what it means to follow Jesus in light of who he is. He wants to show us that Jesus is the son of God. And then he wants to show us what it means to follow Jesus in light of who he is, which is exactly what Evangel preached about last week. If you were here, we had a guest preacher, my friend, Evangel Tam. He, he talked about how because Jesus is the son of God, he has authority in our lives. He has authority to reprioritize our relationships so that the family of God now becomes our primary family there are new blood relatives, not united by the blood of human genetics, but drawn together through the blood of Christ that was poured out to bring us all into God's family. Jesus as the son of God has authority and we're called to respond to that authority in a certain way. And we're going to see that truth again in today's passage that Jesus as the son of God has authority and we're called to respond to that authority in a certain way. And, we're going to see that demonstrated slightly differently in today's passage with that in mind th- then we did sorry we'll see that slightly differently in today's passage than we did in last week's with that in mind let's jump in and look at today's passage and it starts in mark chapter 5 verse 21 when jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea now Let's just catch up with where we are in the story of Mark. Jesus, he comes on the scene with a boom. He starts teaching and doing miracles and his fame is spreading and crowds come and gather to hear him teach. And right as his ministry is starting to gain steam, he he turns to his disciples and he's like, let's get out of here. And he has them get on a boat and cross the sea to a Gentile or non-Jewish territory. Historical context reminder, Jews and Gentiles Do not mix. One scholar said Jews believed that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. So as the disciples, they have to be wondering at this point, why on earth would Jesus, the Jewish teacher and miracle worker and prophet, want us to associate with that scum? And from the disciples' perspective, this trip across the sea was one of those trips where everything that can go wrong does go wrong so on the way across the sea a storm breaks out and the disciples probably thought this is a sign from god he's telling us we made a mistake getting on this boat turn around and go back and so they wake jesus up afraid that they're gonna die and he just sort of gets up and he says to the wind and the waves cut it out and they do and the disciples are even more terrified now than they were when they thought they were gonna die from the storm because who can do that and then they get the other side to the Gentile territory and what should greet them there but a demon-possessed man who's out of his mind and a huge herd of pigs two things that are disgusting to good Israelites but Jesus does a miracle he heals the demon possessed man and in the process of doing so wipes out the herd of pigs and the people from the town they start to hear about it and they start to come out to Jesus and the disciples probably are starting to think like, oh my goodness, we're gonna get a crowd and he's gonna get a huge crowd here and then even more people will be following him. But that doesn't happen. No, because the people in this territory, they realize this Jesus guy is trouble. Yeah, he healed this demon-possessed man, but he's been here for a grand total of 10 minutes and already caused hundreds of thousands of US dollars worth of damage to our local economy. If we let him stay, what's he gonna do? He's gonna wipe us out completely. And so they tell Jesus, you have to leave. Get out of here, go home. And so Jesus, as soon as he and his disciples land, basically have to get back in the boat, turn around, go back to Israel. And as soon as the boat lands back in Israel, the crowds that they tried to leave behind are right there to meet him again. And that's where today's passage is picking up. So let's look at verses 22 and 23. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue Jairus by name and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So Jairus, he's the type of person who has it all in life. He's, a synagogue ruler, which means he's probably respected in the community. He's in a position of power and privilege. He may have a good amount of money. And yet, this powerful and privileged man fights through the crowd and throws himself on the ground at Jesus' feet because he's in trouble. And all of his power, all of his prestige, all of the things he has going for him in life cannot help him right now. He's desperate, and he realizes unless Jesus does something, his situation is hopeless. And what's his problem? Well, his daughter is about to die. As a parent, I can't imagine the pain and agony that he's going through. I hope I never have to. And Mark doesn't tell us too much about the daughter's condition. Has she been sick for a long time, and now it's just reaching the end? Did this just come on suddenly? And On one level, none of that matters at this point. All that matters is that now she's in her last minutes. And if Jesus doesn't come and do a miracle, she has no hope. So her dad, a respected man in the community, he humbles himself. He throws himself on the ground before Jesus in the hope that maybe Jesus can save his daughter's life. The man clearly has faith in Jesus faith that's willing to lose face for the sake of putting himself in a place where Jesus can help him. And Jesus' responds to that faith. Look at verse 24. And he went with him and a great crowd followed with him and thronged about him. Jesus goes with him, but Jesus isn't the only one who goes with this man. The whole crowd is excited because they just want to see another miracle. They want to be entertained by this amazing miracle worker, Jesus. And so the whole crowd starts making their way down the street to this man's house so that they can enjoy the show. But there's someone else in the crowd who desperately wants to get to Jesus for their own personal reasons. Look at verses 25 and 26. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So on the surface, this woman is the total opposite of Jairus. Remember, it's a patriarchal society, so as a man, he's privileged. As a woman, she is not. He is a synagogue ruler who would be respected and looked up to by everyone around him. This woman has had a discharge of blood for 12 years, which means she has a sickness that under the Jewish law makes her ceremonially unclean. That means she cannot even set foot inside the synagogue much less be a ruler in the synagogue. She's she's separated from God's people. Jairus has a family that he clearly loves and is connected to where this woman, because of her disease, anyone who touches her, who makes physical contact with her, becomes ceremonially, ceremonially unclean like her for the rest of the day. And that means that she's had to avoid human contact for as long as she's had this disease, for 12 years, rather than experiencing the love and connection of a family like Jairus does. She's been shunned by society for over a decade. And then just like on a really basic level, Jairus's name is told to us. She's just a woman on every level. From a human perspective, Jairus is in a loftier position than her a position of power and privilege and prestige that she can't even imagine. And yet, Despite all their differences, Jairus and this woman find themselves in exactly the same place. Each of them is in a position in life where their situation is hopeless unless Jesus does a miracle for them. The woman, she's tried to get help from other places. She she spent all of her money on doctors and none of the doctors could help her. They happily took her money, but their treatments only left her worse off than she was before every solution she turned to other than jesus only left her worse off have you ever been in that position where you're struggling and you try to turn to a solution other than jesus and they only make your situation worse maybe you're feeling sad and lonely so you turn to pornography or alcohol to cheer you up and you feel a little bit better for a while but then Afterwards, you feel more sad and lonely than you did at first. Or maybe you're afraid of connecting with people in face-to-face relationships because you've been hurt before and you think, maybe if I just connect with people on social media, avoid this face-to-face stuff, avoid these situations where I can get hurt, put it myself in a situation where I can perfectly curate and and put forward my best face, and it's fun for a while because people are starting to like you. And then you realize it's all built on a lie. I don't have real friends. I have people who like some fake version of me and you feel more lonely than you did before you got on social media. Maybe you're afraid for the future. So you think I'm gonna save up as much money as I can so that my family can be safe and secure. And then every day reveals new things to be afraid of or scared about and no matter how much money is in your account, you're just more scared than ever. Let me tell you, when we say as Christians that the gospel is good news, it's not just because Jesus promises us heaven when we die. It's because Jesus offers us full abundant life, the best way to live here and now on the earth as well. Jesus wants to give us full and abundant life, but that life is only available through knowing and loving and being connected to him. And as long as we're looking to the world and its solutions to give us what only Jesus can truly give, we're accepting a cheap substitute that can't help but leave us worse off than we were when we started, just like this woman this woman, she's in a desperate situation. What can she do? Let's look at verses 27 through 29. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So like Jairus, she comes to Jesus, but Jairus had the face and the prestige and the privilege to come directly to Jesus and invite Jesus into his house. This woman can't do that. At least she doesn't feel like she can do that because she's been an outcast for so long. She carries so much shame and fear with her. So instead of coming straight up before Jesus and inviting him into her house, she sneaks up behind Jesus. She knows that he has power. She knows that his power can heal her. And she just wants to tap into that power and then get away. So she sneaks up behind Jesus. She touches the edge of his clothing and boom, instant healing. She feels this power go through her mission accomplished. I can turn around and go home, except she's not the only one who knows what just happened. Look at verses 30 through 32 and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Jesus felt that power had gone out of him, which it's crazy. Like God is a God who heals. The Bible is very clear about that. God heals and sometimes through God's grace, God heals people through the prayers of his people, through the prayers of you and me. I had one time I was sick for over a month. I had been to several doctors, tried several different treatments. Nothing was helping. I went to a Bible study one night and I told my friends like, I just had this issue for over a month. Nothing the doctors can do can help me. Can you guys pray for me? So they prayed for me and I I felt like maybe something happened in that moment, but I didn't want to like, overreact and be really excited and realize it was just like this this temporary feeling in the moment. So I didn't say anything. said, give it time, see if it's actually doing better. I woke up the next morning and for the first time in a month I felt better. God healed me through the prayer of my friends. And when that happened, it's not, because my friends had some amazing power just naturally flowing from inside them that they somehow transferred to me when they laid hands on me and prayed for me. No, it's because the power of Jesus was poured out on me through their prayers. When we pray for people and God heals them, it's not because we have great power. It's because Jesus has great power to heal and he works through us. You can think of it kind of like we're a pipe and he pours his power into one end and it flows out the other end through us to the people, that we're praying for but when jesus heals people it's different when jesus heals people it's because he in and of himself has great power it's not that he's like a pipe that needs something to pour into him from the other end in order to do anything it's it's more like he's a fountain and it's just overflowing with power and life there's more than enough power in jesus to go around paul tells us in first corinthians fifteen forty-five. jesus is life giving spirit, there's an overflow of life in him. And that life gives life to those who are connected to him. And I don't really understand exactly how it works here in this passage or in general for that matter, but somehow when this lady touches Jesus, this power transfers from him to her and he feels it. Something he has an abundance of is taken away from him and given to someone who has a deficit. It's an exchange of his power for her weakness. It's a miniature picture of the cross actually, where Christ's perfection and good standing before God are exchanged for our sin and rebellion against God and the consequences we deserve for them, which is beautiful. There's this miniature picture of the cross where Christ's power and strength is transferred to her and her weakness is transferred to him. But Jesus feels it happen and he stops dead in his tracks. And he says, who touched me and the disciples all think he's nuts because obviously Jesus, everyone touched you. The crowd is all around you. It's like being in central on the MTR at rush hour. Social distancing is not possible right now. Everyone is touching everyone else because it's just a packed place. But Jesus knows that one person in this crowd touched him differently than anyone else. So he stops and he looks around. Now remember, he's still in the middle of a life or death emergency. Jairus' daughter is on her deathbed, ready to die any minute. If Jesus doesn't get there on time, tragedy is guaranteed, but Jesus stops. He turns around and he looks for who touched him in the crowd. Realize it would have been so easy for Jesus to just keep walking The miracle had already happened. The the woman was already healed. This little girl desperately needed him there, but Jesus had to talk to the woman. Why? Because he knew that her faith was present, but defective. She had Aladdin faith. Here's what I mean by Aladdin faith. She thought Jesus was like the genie in Aladdin's lamp. You just have to rub the lamp the right way. And your wish is his command. And in a similar way, just touch Jesus clothes, your sickness will be healed, but that's not how Jesus works. He's not a genie who can be forced to respond when we call on him using the perfect formula. He is God. He didn't come simply to impress us with cool tricks. He came to bring us new and abundant life. And that life is found in knowing him, not just in using him as a source of cool tricks. If the woman is healed of her disease, but she doesn't truly encounter Jesus in a way that changes her heart in that process, she won't have that abundant life. Cause even though she's physically healed, she's still trapped. She's overcome by fear of others and shame. And that's why she won't show her face. And Jesus wants her to set her free from this fear and this shame that's also holding her captive so that she can live in full freedom, not just physical freedom, but complete freedom in her life. So Jesus stops. He turns around, even though he's in the middle of a life or death emergency, and he scans the crowd for the person who touched him and the woman realizes she is caught. Look at verses 33 through 34. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace and be healed of your disease. She's terrified, but she comes forward and tells Jesus the whole truth. And just as the Bible says it will, the truth sets her free. Notice a few things that Jesus does with her here. First, he draws her out. Given her circumstances in life, she has to be used to being overlooked. That's probably a big part of why she thinks she can just sneak in, touch Jesus, get healed, and disappear because no one else in life notices her. So why would Jesus notice her? But Jesus, by stopping and drawing her out, he communicates to her, I see you. As a person, you're not a nuisance. You're not an obstacle. You are a person, an image bearer of God who has worth and value. You are important. Let me ask you, church, do you realize that's how Jesus feels about you, that you are important? but that's not all Jesus does. He also doesn't freak out at her. Remember, her touch made people unclean. Her touching you meant that you could not be around polite society until the sun went down, and then you could not set foot in the synagogue until the sun went down. The synagogue ruler is right there, so if Jesus wants to save face, freaking out at this woman who just made him ceremonially unclean is the way to do it, And to learn that this woman had intentionally forced her way through the crowd for the sake of touching you would have caused most people in that society to erupt in anger. Imagine if someone today forced their way through a crowd for the sake of, of dumping a cup of Coke on top of you, how angry and upset you would be then multiply that by more because it's even worse anyone in their right mind in that society would erupt in anger at this woman. But Jesus doesn't do that. He shows her compassion. Do you realize that no matter how other people respond to you, Jesus has compassion for you. And then what else does Jesus do? He sends her away. In peace. She came in shame and fear and trembling, but Jesus doesn't want her to live that way. He wants her to have freedom from those things, to have peace. And, church, do you realize Jesus wants you to have peace in your life? And then, fourth, Jesus calls her daughter. Remember this whole time, as this interaction with this woman is going on, Jairus is right there. Jairus, his daughter is dying. He's probably seething with impatience and anxiety. Like like Jesus, why are you taking so long to get to my daughter? She's dying, don't you understand? This is life and death. This woman, she's had this disease for 12 years. She's gonna survive another day. You can come back and deal with her later, but my daughter is about to die. And come on, Jesus, like she's been talking for a long time. She's literally telling her whole life story. Why don't you just cut her off and get to the important thing? My daughter, don't you realize that my daughter is going to die? And Jesus, by calling this woman daughter, he's actually answering all of those questions for Jairus. He's saying, Jairus, I'm taking this detour because the depth of love and care and concern that you feel for your daughter, it's the depth of love and care and concern that I feel for this woman. You want to see your daughter live, yes, that is awesome. But in the same way, I wanna see this woman live, really live. And he's saying that not just to Jairus, but also to this woman. You have a place to belong in my family. You're my daughter. I love you. Like this man loves his daughter. I love you. Do you church, do you realize that's how Jesus feels about you today? That he loves you. That he wants you to find your place of belonging in his family. The scene is beautiful, but sadly, it's interrupted by messengers bearing bad news. Look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jairus' worst fears came true. Jesus' delay to help this woman and listen to her life story cost the precious time they needed to save his daughter's life. And the messengers say, there's no more hope. There's no more need to bother Jesus because there's nothing more that Jesus can do. And how does Jesus respond? Well, look at verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And Mark is brilliant here because the Greek word for overhearing actually can have multiple meanings, one of them being to ignore. So it could be that these guys come up to Jairus, they're talking to him and Jesus just overhears it and jumps into the conversation. But it could be They're just talking to Jairus and Jesus. They're like, ah, she's dead. Nothing else Jesus can do. And Jesus completely ignores them and jumps in and addresses Jairus directly before Jairus has a chance to act on their advice. Jesus doesn't want Jairus to turn away. Jesus wants this to be an excellent opportunity for Jairus to believe and to grow. And so Jesus tells him, do not fear, only believe. Now I know someone in my life, not from the bridge, who anytime you share with this person about something you're struggling with or something you're afraid of, their go-to response is you just need to have faith. And I know this person is well-meaning, but if I'm honest, it always feels a little bit empty when this person says this. And here's why, because if you spend any amount of time talking to this person, you quickly see that they get freaked out about stuff going on in their life and they get stressed and they get anxious and they get worried. And in their stressed out moments, if you were to say to them, you just need to have faith, it would not go over well. Have you ever met anyone like that? Right? And because of that, when this person says, you just need to have faith, it often feels like what they're really saying is, I don't want to talk about your issues right now. So I'm giving you some answer that sounds good and biblical that will stop the conversation so we can move on and talk about something more comfortable. And I'm guessing a lot of us have met people like that in some way, shape or form before. People where just have faith almost becomes a weapon that they can use to avoid having to like enter into or deal with the pain and hurt in your life. And if we don't realize the context of what's happening in this passage, it may feel like that's what Jesus is doing to Jairus when he says, don't fear, only believe that we will import our experiences in life of people who use this line as a weapon and see Jesus using this line as a weapon. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. And it's so important for us to realize that what's different. Well, remember where they are and what just happened. Jairus has just seen, Firsthand with his own eyes, Jesus being so full and overflowing with life and power that he did a miracle without even realizing it was happening until after the fact. That's mind boggling right now, Jairus because of this, he hasn't just heard from others about the incredible power of Jesus. He has seen it firsthand. and Jesus in saying, do not fear only believe he's telling Jairus, you know, that I have power to heal and give life. Believe that I want to use that power to bless you, just like I just used it to bless this woman. So let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus has the power to heal and give life and that he wants to use that power to bless you? Apparently, Jairus is listening when Jesus says this because they continue on in their journey. Look at verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when they had entered, sorry, when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. So Jesus leaves the crowd behind. He just takes his inner circle of three disciples with him into Jairus' house. And in Jewish funerals, families were expected to hire people as professional mourners who would just cry and wail about their loss. And apparently these people have already arrived on the scene. They're making a scene, making a commotion, as Jesus walks in the house, it's loud, it's chaotic. And Jesus comes in and he says to them, what's the big deal? She's just taking a nap. Have you ever realized like how incredibly insensitive so many things Jesus says would have been if he hadn't immediately followed them up with miracles? Like this this is, if, if you're not bringing her back from the dead, this is, possibly the most insensitive thing you can say at this moment. Everyone in the house knows that this is ridiculous. She's dead. She's not coming back. They start laughing at Jesus because this girl is clearly dead. And Jesus sends him out and he goes into the room with the mother, the father, and the three disciples. And then look what happens starting in verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. He grabs her hand. He says to her, honey, it's time to get up. And she does. It's like she's waking up from a nap, just like Jesus said was the case. And when Jesus tells, and then Jesus tells the mom and dad and the three disciples, don't tell anyone what just happened. Now, why would he do this? I think there's two big reasons. First, if the crowds hear about it, they're going to misunderstand who he is. They're going to misunderstand why he came and they're going to respond wrongly to him. And he doesn't want that. But second, he cares about them. Jesus, his goal isn't just to become popular and famous. His goal is to obey God and love people. And yes, loving people and obeying God led to some level of fame in his life, but that was a side effect. That was not the primary goal. Telling this family not to say a word about the miracle. It shows that he's not just using them to expand and promote his personal brand. He genuinely cares about them. Church, do you believe that Jesus genuinely cares about you? You know, the Bible, it tells us that our salvation is as great a miracle for us as as this miracle was for this girl. That when we trust in Jesus, we move from spiritual death to spiritual life. And this transformation in our lives, It, you know, for this girl, it just, took Jesus taking a detour from his original plans, but for us, it takes so much more. It requires Jesus death, but he willingly endured it in our place because he loves you and he loves me. And so like Jairus, we can trust Jesus because we know that he is the son of God who has power to heal and give life. And that he wants to use that power for our good because he cares about us. And then I love how the story ends. It might seem like a throwaway line to us, but it's so great. He told them to give her something to eat. And again, two things going on here. First, on one level, it just proves that the miracle is real because she's a real person with a body. She's not some ghost. She can eat. But then on another level, it again shows Jesus genuine concern for her as a person because she's been lying on her deathbed for who knows how long. She's Presumably had zero appetite during that time. And now she's restored to full health. She hasn't eaten for a long time. She has got to be starving. And she's not just another miracle to Jesus. She's a person. And he sees her need. And he addresses it. Isn't it great to know that Jesus sees your need. He cares about it. Even when it seems small and trivial compared to everything else going on in life right now. Jesus sees you. He cares about you. He knows you and he loves you. Church, Jesus is the son of God. He has authority to heal. He has authority over life and death. And his authority is not oppressive. He uses it to care for us. He uses it with gentleness and compassion that addresses, yes, physical needs, but also spiritual and relational and emotional needs as well. And Jesus wants to give each of us full, abundant life, the type of life that can only be found in him because he is the son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that life is found in Jesus. Thank you that he is so overflowing with power that he can give life to us. Forgive us for the times that we have refused to believe that he cares for us, that we refuse to believe that he's powerful enough to help us in our need and teach us to trust in him. Make us more like Jesus each day. Help us to respond properly to him and his power and his care in our lives. Help us to see and believe that he is the son of God and let that set us free from our fears. In Jesus' name, amen.